0: Esther is a fantastic story. If you don't like the message today, that's okay. The book is better, okay? So go home, read the book. It, it is the, one of the most interesting stories in the Bible, one of the most compellingly written stories in the Bible. Even if I didn't believe in God, it would still be a good story, an entertaining story. Esther, a little trivia for you, it's one of only two books in the Bible that don't mention the name of God even once. Anybody know what the other one is? Anybody? Yes, There you go, Song of Solomon. Yep, Song of Solomon. So there's your Bible trivia for the day. Esther is takes place in the kingdom of Persia. So a little historical background. At, At a certain point in Israelite history, the people of God were expelled from their land. There was no more Israel. And the the Jews were taken to Babylon for 70 years. At the end of that 70 years, they were sent home. Those who wanted to go home could. This is a generation after that. There are still plenty of Jews who chose not to go back to Israel. And Esther and uh, her adopted father, Mordecai, are among those. So let me start with this. How many of you have ever heard a saying something like this? The safest place to be is right in the center of God's will. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, a few of you. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard something like that. Is it true? Is it true that it's safe to be in God's will? Well, it depends on what you mean by true. If by true you mean that everything goes the way you want it to, that you never have anything bad happen, and everything works out the way you hoped, then no. That's not the way God's will works. Look at anybody in Scripture who followed God's plan. They experience disappointment. They experience hardship. They experience trouble. But if you mean by safe, that you know that you're living the life you were created for, you know that you're right in the right place for whatever God had planned for you from before you were born, the good works that he created you to do, you're going to see them, you're going to be right in the right place to capitalize them, and you're going to live a life that matters, a life that you'll look back on from eternity and say, thank God you led me in the right direction, you were my vision, then that is true. Right in the center of God's will is the only safe place. Out there doing things on your own, freestyling, you're going to waste your life. But in the center of God's will, you're going to experience everything you were created for. The divine appointments He made for you. And this could be your week. This could be a week when something huge happens. Some opportunity comes your way. Some crisis that is an opportunity for you to do something that changes eternity. There could be people in this room who this week are, have an opportunity to have a difficult but necessary conversation with someone who is on the verge of destroying their lives, who is on the path of irreparable damage, and you are the one who has the opportunity to speak words of truth into their hearts? They won't want to hear, but might save them. You, some of you, will gonna have the chance this week to uh, sniff out something bad that's happening in your workplace, and you could keep quiet, but you'll have the opportunity to speak out and bring justice and bring peace. Some of you um, might have an opportunity this week or in the days ahead to to stand up for someone who's being abused, someone who's being mistreated, to be their hero, their advocate, because they need that. No one else will. The bystander effect is still in effect. People will walk by and see others being mistreated and say, it's none of my business. It's your opportunity this week to stand up for righteousness. And there are some of us this week who someone's going to come to you this very week and unload their, their burdens. They're going to share with you something they've never shared with anybody before, the struggles they're going through, the hardships of life, and you have the opportunity to bring them comfort and peace and maybe even say, let me tell you the difference that God has made in my life through Jesus, and that could change their eternity forever. We face these moments of truth, and it's not every day for most of us. It's not even every week, but throughout life, there are those moments, those crisis situations where you have an opportunity to make a difference. How are you going to know you're ready for that? Because most of us don't think of ourselves as being heroic. We just want to get through life. We just want to raise our kids and and make our paycheck and, and make it to retirement someday, hopefully. But we can be heroes. We were created for that. How can you be ready for your moment of truth. That's what this story's about. So the story starts in the kingdom of Persia, a kingdom ruled by a guy named Xerxes. Anybody recognize the name Xerxes? If you've seen the movie 300, don't raise your hand. We're in church. I don't want to embarrass you. But okay, so that's the king in that movie. That movie is historically baloney. Just understand, King Xerxes was not anything like that, except he was the guy who was ruler of Persia, which was the the most powerful kingdom on earth at the time, and tried to conquer Greece. So this is that guy. King Xerxes, at the beginning of the story, is his reign is fairly new, and so he decides to ingratiate himself to his public by throwing a massive celebration, a weeks-long party where you can drink the king's wine and you can eat the king's food and you can enjoy all the king's music and everything the king has to offer, and the whole city of Susa, capital of Persia, turns out and basically gets sloshed. And in the midst of this drunken spree, King Xerxes says, now I know how to really impress people. I've got a a wife, Queen Vashti, who is just knockout gorgeous. I'm going to bring her out and show her off. And so he sends word to Vashti, says, put on your royal crown. Come and display yourself for my party attendees. And Queen Vashti, in a stunning moment of early feminism, says, no, I will not budge. I am not some piece of meat to be pawed at by drunken fools. I am not going to come out at your command. And the king is upset. I mean, this is the most powerful man on earth, but he can't tell his wife what to do. What is there to do? What? Well, he's got to act decisively, right? So he, he calls a meeting. Yeah, that'll show her, right? He, he gets his royal counselors together and, and he says, what am I going to do? Because my wife won't listen to me. And they're like, hey, this is serious business, king. We can't, we can't let this go because if word gets out, then maybe my wife won't listen to me anymore. And, and maybe I, all over the kingdom of Persia, wives will be doing their own things, man. They'll be, they'll be eating bonbons. Well, I want food on my table. I don't, I, I don't like this. So what you have to do, King Xerxes, is you have to issue a decree that says Queen Vashti is banished from your presence forever. She cannot come into your presence ever again. And so he signs the law, and Queen Vashti, I'm sure, says, well, I never intended to come into your presence again anyway, so thanks for nothing. So a a gap of four years passes, probably the period during which Xerxes tries to conquer Greece and fails and comes home. The Bible doesn't say that, but there's this gap between the third and seventh year. By the seventh year of his reign, Xerxes is lonely. Now, he's the king of the most powerful nation on earth. He has, a, he has a harem, but he has no wife. And so he sits down with his royal counselors again and says, what am I to do? I am a lonely man. And one of the advisors raises his hand, and he thinks to himself, I am going to get promoted for this. I am a genius. I'm getting the best parking space and the corner office and I'm gonna be employee of the month. He says, king, here's what you do. There's 90 provinces in the kingdom of Persia. All different races, all different kinds of people There are beautiful women in every one of those provinces. Send out your scouts to find the most beautiful of all and bring them into your harem. And you can, after a year of beauty treatments, which I don't know what beauty treatments were back then. I guess, you know, Mary Kay and step aerobics. I don't know. But anyway, after a year of beauty treatments, each one will, will come into your house for a night. You can spend a night with each one. And then you choose at the end which one you want to be your queen. Sort of like the Bachelor Persia edition, okay, right? So chapter 2, verse 4 says, literally says, this advice appealed to the king. I bet it did. Don't you think? It's like, wow, what a genius idea. So this is what they do. Now, there is a young woman. Her her Hebrew name is Hadassah. She's given the, the Persian name Esther. She's an orphan. Her parents died when she was very young. She's got an older cousin named Mordecai who takes her in and raises her as his own. Esther grows up to be a stunningly beautiful young woman. And somehow or another, she gets swept up in this. She becomes part of this movement and is taken into the king's harem. And after that year of beauty treatments, she goes and spends her night with the king and he is enchanted by her beauty and her charm and he makes her his bride. And she becomes, against all odds, the queen of Persia. And yet, she does not reveal her ethnicity. Her, her cousin Mordecai says, don't tell him you're a Jew. Now, in the midst of all of this, something seemingly unrelated happens. Mordecai, her, her cousin, is an official in the court of the king. He is working in the palace. He sniffs out a plot. There's, there's a plot by two, two of uh two of Xerxes' high officials to assassinate him. Well, Mordecai blows the whistle on this. And these two men are exposed, they're they're executed, and the king's life is saved. Nothing happens after that. That's that's something you just need to file away for later, okay? Now, in the meantime, Xerxes decides to promote one of his nobles, a man named Haman, to be his de facto prime minister, his right-hand man. Haman, it turns out, is a very vain, a very ambitious, a very arrogant man. And he insists that when he's not in the presence of the king, everybody else must bow down before him. Any other man, you and me, we have to bow down before Haman. Mordecai, however, refuses. He will not bow down before this arrogant man. And that burns Haman up. He cannot get over the fact that there's this arrogant Jew who won't this stubborn jew who won't get down on his knees before him and he says okay i'm not just going to kill you i'm going to kill all of your people and he devises a plot he 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 he's a superstitious guy so he casts lots to see what is the best day the gods think for me to get gain my vengeance gain my victory and and the, the lots show him this particular day he writes a law and places it on the on the desk of the king that says on this day All the Jews will be executed all over Persia, even down in Israel. And Xerxes, of course, is too bent on world conquest and other things. He doesn't doesn't really want to pay attention to domestic affairs like some people group that's out of line, so he just signs it without thinking. Haman joins that long list in history of people who've decided, let's get rid of the Jews. When When you study history, it is stunning how many people including, sad to say, some Christians who have decided the Jews are not to be, not to be uh, born, that they, they must be persecuted, they must be executed, even though they're the chosen people of God. Haman is one more in that, that long line. So Mordecai hears about this, this law that has been signed. Mordecai hears that it is your stubbornness that has caused this, your, your refusal to bow down before your superior, and, and now your, all your people are going to be destroyed, and, and Mordecai is devastated. And in the ancient times when you were devastated, when you were sad, you would take off your, your regular clothes and you would put on an uncomfortable kind of garment called sackcloth. And it was a sign of mourning. That's what Mordecai did. He took off his royal uniform, as it were, and placed on himself this ugly, scratchy garment called sackcloth. He put dust on his head and he just began to weep. And word got back to Esther, something's wrong with your cousin. In fact, something's wrong with all the Jews of this village, of this town. What's going on? So that's where we pick up the story. She sends out one of her uh, servants, a man named Hatak. And and we're going to pick up with what he finds out with verse 6 of chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, verse 6. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called in to go into the king. So let's just pause there for a second. So the dilemma for Esther is her cousin Mordecai says, you're the only one who can speak for us. You have access to the king, and he'll listen to you. And she says, no, he won't. See, the king of Persia has this special law. You cannot come into his presence unless he asks for you. Any of you uh, who are working people and you have an office, don't you wish you had that law? No one could pop into your office. You know, if, if, you're, a, if you're a homemaker and, you, and you, you work at home, don't you wish there was a law that said no one could call you unless you wanted them to call? That your kids couldn't say, Mom, I need your help, unless you were open for business, so to speak, right? Xerxes has this. You can't walk into the presence of the king. Literally, if you come staggering into the presence of the king, Hey, um, King Xerxes, I need your help, they would be on you. The the guards would be on you, and they would bind you and, and kill you right then and there. Unless the king said, Whoa, 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 here's my gold scepter. Touch the end of it. You're forgiven. And Esther says, You know, ordinarily I would think, maybe I have the the ability to walk into his presence and he'll forgive me, but it's been 30 days since he even called for me. I haven't seen his face in a month. I think he's kind of over me. I don't think he's that into me anymore. So I don't think this is going to work out. Here's what Mordecai says. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, I need to point out a few things. We think of Esther and Mordecai. We've heard this story before. and Oh, they're these these great biblical heroes. They're obviously God-loving people, right? They're in the Bible. I want you to think about something. It's been a generation since the people of God went home. Esther and Mordecai are still in Persia. They're living in the prosperous place instead of going home back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild the temple and try to rebuild the, the homeland of God's people. They're obviously not devout Jewish people. The name of God is not mentioned in this book in part because Esther and Mordecai aren't particularly devout up to this point. Esther, let us remind you, has slept with a man, not her husband, has married a man who is a pagan, both of which are blatant uh, uh, disobedience to God's commands. And you might say, well, you know, she didn't have a choice. She might have died if she'd refused the king. Compare her story to the story of Daniel. How many times did Daniel say, Hey, if I die, I die, but I'm not going to disobey my God. So anybody who thinks, well, you know, I'm one of those just ordinary believers. I mean, God uses outstanding people, the the spiritual blue bloods. I'm just ordinary. Esther was ordinary. Mordecai was ordinary. But right here, in the midst of this crisis, suddenly Mordecai remembers the God of his fathers, he remembers the way he was raised, and he says, listen, Esther, I know two things. I know, number one, that, that God's going to rescue the Jews one way or another. They're his people. We're his people. He's not going to let somebody eliminate us. So it's not like he needs you. It's not like the, the weight of the world is on your narrow little shoulders. You're gonna, we're going to be fine as a people. You may die. I may die. But the Jews will survive because God is watching over us. That's a reminder to you and me. God chooses to let us be part of his plan. God chooses to make us heroes. He doesn't need us. None of us are indispensable. And the second thing he says is, but think about this. Maybe maybe the reason why the king chose you in the first place is because God had all of this in mind. Maybe you were born and raised and and grew into the beauty that you are and, and have this opportunity for this time right now. Maybe God's been getting you ready for this moment since before you were born. That's kind of a staggering thought, isn't it? So that's Esther's moment of truth. This was her time. And I want to say again, each one of us has these moments in our lives. Whether we recognize it or not, there are moments where we have an opportunity to make a difference. How? We're going to take a break from the story for just a moment. How do we make sure we're ready? Two things. First of all, I'd say it's important to develop an automatic prayer life. An automatic prayer life. And what I mean by that is the kind of life where you just automatically go to God with everything. It's just your first instinct. You don't try to do it yourself and then go to God when you fail. You go to Him first. Let me tell you about one of the most powerful prayers I have ever prayed. When I was 20 years old, I owned a 1985 Chevy Camaro, Silver, Coolest car I've ever had, coolest car I ever will have. I was dating Carrie. She lived in spring. I lived on the campus of U of H. I would go visit her. I'd make that drive down I-45 at least three times a week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I drove that Corvette or that Camaro like a Camaro is meant to be driven, right? I, I drove it fast, and Houston freeways are good for that. On this particular day, it was raining really hard. That happens in Houston. And because I was 20 and a male, that did not affect my speed whatsoever. The rain was, ir- was, was just irrelevant to my rate of, of progress. I was just flying down those roads, and suddenly I hit a patch of water, one of those big puddles, one of those ponds that develop in, in Houston freeways, and my, I felt the car start to drift. And in that situation, I did the exact wrong thing. I stomped on the brakes as hard as I could. And they locked up, and the car began to spin. Now, I ended up, before it was all said and done, I ended up doing a complete 180. You know, busy day on the freeways. It's always busy on 545. Cars zipping past me. Eventually, all of them stopped. And somehow, I didn't even get nicked. Nothing. And I slowly turned the car with trembling hands and drove at 55 miles an hour (laughs) the rest of the way. And when I picked up Carrie, I said, Why don't you drive tonight? But I realized something as I was, after it was over, I realized that while I was spinning, and it seemed to take forever, it was probably just five or six seconds, but while I was spinning, I was shouting. And all I could shout, all, my, all the words that my mouth would form were two words, and those words were, please and Lord. That's all I could say. Please, Lord, please, Lord, please, Lord. And I got home, or I got back to the dorm that night, and I told my roommate, who was not a Christian, I told my roommate that story, and he laughed and he said, well, I'd have been screaming too, but it wouldn't have been, please, Lord. So I believe that. that was a powerful prayer for me, because it was a recognition that when I was in danger, I was going to go automatically to Him. And that wasn't always true for me. That hadn't been true before. But meeting her and, and, and being influenced by her and some other good people and, and learning to pray about every doubt, about every discouragement, about every dilemma, about every question, just go to God constantly. It, it showed me that now I was to the point where when I was in trouble, I would go immediately to Him. And that should be the case for you. Pray diligently. Pray daily. Pray constantly so that your automatic response is to go to Him in prayer. And the second thing you need to do to be ready, exercise your faith. Exercise your faith. Faith, that concept, that word is often misunderstood. Today, if you listen to some popular preachers, you would think that faith means you tell God what you want. And if you believe in it hard enough, like a Disney hero, you're going to have it. That's not faith. That's fairy tales. Faith is... Faith is trusting God even when the circumstances make it seem like a bad idea. Faith is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace standing before or standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. Furnace is heated up seven times hotter than usual, and they know they're about to be roasted. And they say, hey, king, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. I mean, you can throw us in that furnace if you want. Our God is stronger than you. He can save us if he wants to. But even if he does not. We're still not going to bow. We can burn alive. It'll still be better than disobeying our God. That's faith. It's Job. Job's lost his health, his wealth, his family. He's lost everything. And he says, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. God can take my life. I'll still trust him more than anything else. Faith is trusting God when it doesn't make any sense to trust God. And faith is like a muscle. I want you to know this. A lot of folks will say to me, well, I wish I had the kind of faith that this person has. Everyone has faith. It's just not everybody exercises it. Faith is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. So what are you doing to exercise your faith? What are you doing to strengthen your faith? How do we grow in faith? Well, here at First Baptist, we believe there's a process to it. You have to connect with God, which means worshiping Him, in truth and spirit, you have to grow, which means you pursue Christ-like qualities. And, and part of that is being part of a small group where you can be influenced by others and, and bless others. And and after you connect with God and you grow in Christ, you also have to reach others. You have to your life has to be about more than yourself. As you put others first, as you serve others, as you get involved in ministry, your faith grows. Are you exercising your faith? I know you're here on a Sunday morning. What else are you doing to exercise your faith? So how does Esther respond? Esther's got this dilemma. Do I go before the king? Do I risk my life? Verse 15, she sends back a response to her cousin. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my maids will fast as you do. So right there, she's praying. That's prayer. I'm going to fast for three days. I'm going to be so devoted to praying over this, I'm not even going to take time to eat or drink. And then it says, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And that, my friends, is faith. Prayer and faith. The faith that says, if I die, I die, but I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to obey God. So what happens? Esther fasts for three days. The Jews of Susa fast for three days. At the end of those three days, she walks unbidden into the presence of the most powerful man alive. The guards of the king are ready. Queen or no, she's going to die. And then the king stretches out his scepter. says, I'm glad to see you. It's been too long. What do you want? What can I do for you today? And she says, O king, would you come to a banquet that I'm preparing for you and bring Haman with you? Now, meanwhile, God's got some plans for Haman. This is my favorite part of the story, okay? By the way, this series, I love doing this series, but mainly because it's just a lot of good stories, really good stories, and this is one of the best. So Haman is disgruntled, By the way, is it possible to be gruntled? I'm not sure. But he's disgruntled. Fun with English. Because, okay, he's rich and he's handsome and he's successful. I don't know if he's handsome, but he thinks he is. He's got everything that he wants. In fact, all of his enemies are going to be destroyed on a certain day that's already on the calendar and the law can't be revoked. But he's still got to look at Mordecai every time he comes to the king's gate. And that just burns him up. Here's the object of my problems sitting at the gate every day when I come to work. What am I to do? And his wife and his advisors say to him, Listen, here's what you do. You need to execute this man, Mordecai, in a very public way so that everyone sees how powerful you are. In fact, we suggest you build a gallows 75 feet high on which to execute your enemy. Now, keep in mind... We hear gallows, and if we've grown up watching Westerns, we think of the place where they hang people with a noose. That's not the way it was done in Persia. In Persia, the method of execution was impalement. So a gallows means a spike on which to impale someone. They're going to build a spike that rises 75 feet in the air, and they're going to stick Mordecai on it so that people from miles around will say, what's that up there? Oh, that's the enemy of Haman. Well, I better not cross him. Haman says, that is a fantastic idea. I'm going to set to work on that right now. He gets his workmen together. They start working on this massive, uh, this massive gallows, this massive instrument of execution. Meanwhile, while the workers are toiling through the night, King Xerxes in his palace cannot sleep. He is struck with insomnia and there's not enough ambient in the world to put him out. And so he calls for the royal scribe and says, Would you come and read to me the annals of my reign? Because nothing on earth is more boring than listening to minutes being read, right? Okay, so on such and such a date, king, you signed this law, you attended this banquet, you fought this battle, you honored this prince. And as the, the, the scribe drones on and on, and we can imagine the king's eyes drooping and it's starting to work. He's starting to fall asleep. And then suddenly he comes to this point where he says, and then on this day, the 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 person Mordecai who works in your gate exposed a plot to kill you. And these two officials were executed. And suddenly King Xerxes is wide awake again. He says, oh, I forgot all about that. This man Mordecai who saved my life, what was done for him? And you can picture the scribe looking at his scroll and saying, well, it doesn't say here. i, I I don't know that anything was done. And the king says, well, that's not right. This man needs to be honored. This man needs to be rewarded in some way. What can we do for him? And the scribe's like, well, I'm, I'm just a scribe. I don't, I don't, that's not my job. And so the king says, well, who can we ask? Is there anyone here? And he's like, well, it's the middle of the night, but I'll check. And he goes out into the court to see if anyone has gotten there early for work. Sun hasn't even risen yet. Well, guess what Haman has decided? Haman has decided, I don't want to wait till dawn to talk to the king. I want to be there the moment he awakens and walks into his throne room to say, Oh, king, I've got this enemy, and I'd like to have him executed today. Can we do that right now? And so the scribe walks back and he says, "Um, Sir, Haman is in the court. He says, bring him in. He's the perfect man. He's exactly who I want to see right now. Haman strolls into the king's bedroom. The king sits up right in his bed and says, oh, Haman, let me ask you something. If there's someone I really, really, really want to honor, what should I do for them? And Haman thinks to himself, well, clearly he's talking about me. I mean, who else would the king want to honor? So he says, here's what you do, king. You take your royal steed and you place that man on it. And you take your royal robe and you put it on, on I mean on him, you put it on his shoulders, and then you have your best man lead him through the city, crying out in a loud voice, this is the man the king chooses to honor. And the king says, that's perfect. Go out and do that right now for Mordecai. And don't you wish you had video of that moment? (laughs) Don't you wish you could see the look on his face? face, his greasy face, when he just, oh my gosh, everything that I've planned has turned on me. Now, the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but think about this. It just so happens that this is the one night where King Xerxes can't sleep. It just so happens that As he's reading the chronicles of his reign, he happens to come across the part that mentions Mordecai, who he has forgotten. It just so happens that Mordecai was never rewarded in any way for his act of heroism. It just so happens that Haman, that night, decides to come into work early. It just so happens that the king words his request for advice in such a way that not only does Haman not know he's referring to Mordecai, but he vainly assumes he's referring to himself. Do you see how God set all of that up? God's not mentioned, but God's at work in all of this. Which, by the way, anybody here got any enemies? Don't raise your hand. Anybody here got anybody you really don't like, who's, who's really hurt you, and you're thinking, well, God, when am I going to get justice? What your flesh is telling you is, get justice for yourself. Pay them back. At the very least, hate their lousy guts, right? And yet Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. Why? Does he want us to be normats? No, because Jesus knows. My Father's got you. My Father has your back. If you get your own, remember when it says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. If we try to get our own vengeance, eh, maybe, maybe we'll get some measure of satisfaction. Probably not, but maybe. But if we leave it to God, God can do so much better. See, when you love your enemies instead of hating them, one of two things happens. Either either they repent and they become believers, Saul of Tarsus, for instance, or God does something like he did to Haman here. If they won't repent, they're going to pay. Either way, vengeance is not our job. So, Haman has the most humiliating day of his life leading his sworn enemy through the streets, crying out to his glory. And as soon as he's done, he's whisked away to this meeting, this, this banquet with Queen Esther and the king. And at this banquet, Esther exposes him and says, this is the man who has, who has plotted to destroy my people. And the king is like, what do you mean, your people? She says, I'm Jewish, and he wants all the Jews to die. And, and Haman didn't know the queen was Jewish. And he's astonished. And the king says, put him to death. And they say, how? And he says, well, I hear he's building this 75-foot gallows. Sounds like a pretty handy place to put him to death. Well, he was going to kill Mordecai on that. Oh, really? Well, let's make Mordecai take his job. And so Haman is hung. And Mordecai becomes the right-hand man of the king. It's beautiful. Mordecai then writes a new law and places it before the king that says on such and such a day, the day that the Jews were to be executed, instead the Jews are now empowered by the the full faith and credit of the Persian empire to defend themselves. And then all the people throughout persia who'd been sharpening their knives and sharpening their spears and getting ready to attack their jewish neighbors in the name of the king now they hear oh no the the force of persia is on the side of the jews and they begin to tremble in fear and in fact the book of esther says some of them even converted to judaism out of fear i mean they they thought circumcision is better than death i'm going to i'm going to become jewish uh, rather than die by the way if you have any Jewish friends or neighbors, every, every year they celebrate a, a, an observance called Purim, and, and that's the, the observance of the story of Esther. But that's not the point. The point is this. God took ordinary people, ordinary folks who did the wrong thing at times, and through them rescued His people. He could have rescued them any way He wanted. He could have sent the angel of heaven down. But he chose an ordinary guy and an ordinary woman. And here's the thing. There's a lot of us in this room, as we hear this story, we're, we're sitting there saying, you know, maybe maybe I can be more than I am. Maybe I can do something great. Maybe I will be on the lookout for those opportunities. Because it's easy to just sit and live a mediocre life and not think of bigger things but God's got bigger plans than you, for, than for that for you. And there are others of us in this room who've said, but I had my moment of truth and I wasted it. I, I didn't speak up when I should have, or I said the wrong thing, or I was all about myself when I should have been about somebody else. And the enemy takes moments like that and he keeps reminding you of them and saying, see, God can't use you. You already failed him. But there's two things I know. I, I know that God loves you right now just as much as he would have if you never would have failed. Because Jesus died for your sins. And when he died for your sins, he took your place. And therefore, his righteousness became your righteousness. And the second thing I know is that God still has plans for you. You know how I know God still has plans for you? Because you're still breathing. He's not finished with you. No matter how many times you failed or how little you've done for him up to this point, God still has plans for you.